0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this panel, uh, very much anticipated on Russia's war against Ukraine and responsibilities for crimes and post-war reconstruction. It, give me, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our distinguished panelists to this event, which is part of the LSE Festival of Ideas, an uh, event full of exciting diff- uh, talks that has been happening for a week. Today is a, the last day of this um, of this series of events. My name is Tomi Lalankin. I'm a professor here at the International Relations Department. Uh, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome our um, other panelists. Um, there will be chance for you to pose your questions at the end of this event. And I will let you know when the floor is open. So please raise your hands during the Q&A and also, and the, and the, the ushers will, will uh, approach you with a microphone. And please make sure to introduce yourself. For those of you who are Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is um, hashtag LSC Festival. Please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. Uh, it will be recorded and hopefully there'll be a podcast afterwards. Today, our guests will be introduced by um, Maria Zolkina, who is the DNAM Fellow at the International Relations Department at LSC. Um, and she's the head of the regional security and conflict studies at ilko kultur democratic initiatives foundation which is a kiev-based think tank maria brings a decade of expertise in regional security in the light of russian aggression since 2014 against ukraine she works on reintegration policies in occupied territories and wartime diplomacy along with sharp analysis of social and political implications of the war on the ukrainian public opinion maria has rich experience in designing and conducting public opinion polls regarding conflict-related issues including in frontline areas and she's also uh, an author of numerous policy and academic papers and i'm sure you have seen her outstanding media uh, engagement and interviews uh, in the last uh, few months to various international media, and she's a tireless campaigner and public intellectual uh, who's been speaking a lot about uh, the, the the war. Uh, so, Maria, if you could introduce the other speakers and and moderate the discussions. Yes,
2: I, I should. It's fine, right? It's working. Thank thank you, Tamila, for very um, warm words. Um, uh i am happy and honored that uh, today we have the fascinating panel of uh, scholars and experts who are dealing um, uh, with specific um, um who are dealing with specific issues related to russian war crimes in ukraine we will speak about the consequences about the nature Um, about the mechanisms which Ukraine uh, in particular is uh, trying to launch uh, to bring Russia to responsibility, both in terms of uh, responsibility for various crimes and responsibility for economic reconstruction uh, and recovery of Ukraine. So I am very pleased that today we have uh, on my right, Steven Siegel, a professor of Slavic and Eurasian studies at the University of Texas at Austin, um, uh, previously, before that, uh, he was a former director at Harvard University of the Ukrainian Research Institute, a summer exchange program. He's also a founder of the February 24 Archive, uh, an ongoing community-driven digital project which actually gathers uh, important information. I'm pretty sure Stephen will share with us about the findings and about them all them information they're gathering there focusing on the building global solidarities during russia's war against ukraine um stephen thank you for being with us today thank you for doing this long travel to get here and to share your expertise and um uh, present um Also, we have uh, today Olga Ivozovska, who is a well-known Ukrainian expert on electoral issues, uh, on democracy standards implementation in uh, inter-Ukrainian legislation. Uh, I, Olga Ivozovsky is the head of well-known um, civil network Opora NGO uh, and she uh, has uh, broad expertise and experience uh, in uh, different electoral observation missions both in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine. Uh, And after uh, the large scale invasion of Russia last year uh, into Ukraine, Olga became a co-founder of the International Center for Ukrainian Victory and also a center for war crimes documentation. Olga, we're very very welcome to uh, see you here. Thank you for joining the second LSE event already. So you have already um, had an experience to speak at another LSE event. So thank you for, for being with us today and for making um, also your long trip from Ukraine to get here. Thank you for that. Um, we also have um, today Olga Onuch, a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester. Thank you for, for coming here. Uh, she joined University of Manchester um, nine years ago, you yeah, in, in 2014. Uh, after she, uh, Before that, she holded various posts at Toronto, Oxford, and Harvard, uh, and is an affiliate of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. So Olga is well known to British academic and wider community because she is also um, permanently speaking on uh, Ukraine-related issues. Uh, uh, Olga is a leading expert in Ukra- on Ukrainian politics, she, ha- she is um, well known here for her comparative study of formation and role of uh, democratic duty and ethnic and civic identity um, as drivers for political behaviour, um, she has published uh, numerous articles and books. And one of the latest books here that, uh, on um, um, effect of Zelensky is well known. And uh, another one. Um, time we thank you for, for coming here and for preparing to share your expertise. Um, We will have two online speakers today. Uh, One of them is already with us. Um, uh, This is Alexandra Matvichuk, a human rights defender, uh, the director of uh, the Center for Civil Liberties, one of the organizations who received the Nobel Peace Prize um, uh, this year. Uh, She well known in Ukraine for monitoring and documenting various types of human rights violation. Uh, She also was um, coordinator of the Euromaidan source initiative launched in 2014, actually at the end of 2013, uh, 2014. Uh, Alexandra will be with us online and we are really uh, appreciating that that she found uh, opportunity to talk to us and to address LSE and wider community. And later on, we will have Bill Browder, but I think I will introduce him when he will be online so he could uh, hear that uh, he, 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 he is introduced and we are really <laughs> appreciating his participation. So as of now, I think we can go uh, directly to the discussion uh, and I am uh, pleased to give the floor to Alexandra Matvichuk. Uh, who has uh, just outstanding experience in uh, very difficult issues of gathering various data on various types of crimes and human rights violations, both along the front line and on occupied territories. Uh, This is a heavy um, emotional, first of all, work uh, with which uh, the team of Alexandra at the Center for Civil Liberties is coping uh, unprecedentedly well. And I, first of all, want to say thank you for uh, all the work you have been doing for Ukraine, and uh, this is not just for Ukraine, this is just for uh, restoration of international justice when it comes to the relations between um, the aggressor and the rest of the world. Uh, Alexandra, I would like to give the floor to you and address you with very broad, but at the same time, I think, fundamental question. Um, How should we struggle right now for restoration of international justice? Uh, Do you imagine uh, the sustainable peace for Ukraine and around Ukraine without proper implementation of international justice mechanisms against the aggressor, and uh, how how can we do that on a practical level?
3: Thank you very much for providing me a floor. It's a huge honor for me to address to this distinguished audience. I'm a human rights lawyer and I have been documenting war crimes in this war, which Russia started against Ukraine in 2014. When large-scale invasion started last year, We united our efforts with dozens of organizations, mostly regional one. We built all Ukrainian network of local documentators, and we have an ambitious goal to document each criminal episode, which was committed in the smallest village in the oblast in Ukraine. And working together for current moment, we have documented more than 41,000 episodes of war crimes. 41,000. It's a huge amount but still only a tip of iceberg. There is no justification for Russian section. There is no legitimate purpose to force people to go down to the basement to order them to appoint eight volunteers and no purpose in shooting them. There is no purpose to have a fun using the tanks firing at people on bicycle whose bodies lay scattered around the streets until liberation. There is no purpose in breaking someone's house, killing the owner and raping the wife next to her nine-year-old child. There is no purpose in shooting at a 14-year-old boy in close range who was just playing with his ball in the yard. And there is no military necessity in doing such horrible things. Russians have done these things only because they could. Russia uses war crimes as the methods of warfare. Russia attempts to break people's resistance and occupy Ukraine by the tool, which I call the immense pain on civilian population. And just to be clear, we not document only violations of Geneva and Hague conventions. We document human pain. That is why, Justice is preconditions for peace in our region, if we speak about sustainable peace in our region, where Russia for decades uses the war as a tool how to achieve their geopolitical interests and uses war crimes as the methods how to win this war. Because Russia for a long time committed horrible atrocities in Chechnya, in Moldova, in Georgia, in Mali, in Syria, in Libya, in other countries of the world. And they have never been punished. Russians believe they can do whatever they want. And that is why we must break the circle of impunity, not only for Ukrainians, not only for people who suffered already from Russian war crimes, but also to prevent the new possible attack to the next nations and the question is how to achieve this because we face with accountability gap with two dimensions the first dimension is in that fact that for current moment there is no international court which can prosecute putin and high political leadership and top military command for the crime of aggression even International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction over the crime of aggression in situation of Russians war against Ukraine. And all these atrocities which we now documented, it's just a result of leadership decision to start to initiate and to plan this war. And that is why we promote the idea to establish a special tribunal on aggression to hold putin lukashenko and its surrounding accountable we have to punish for the war of aggression and this is our historical task because when i speak with politicians from different countries i still have impression that they are looking the world through the prism of Nuremberg trials where nazi war criminals were tried but only after Nazi regime had collapsed. But we live in a new century. Justice must be independent of the magnitude of Putin's regime's power. We cannot wait. We must establish special tribunal now and hold Russian who guilty in these crimes accountable. But there is also a second dimension of this, of this accountability gap, because we face with enormous amount of crimes. And International Criminal Court will limit investigation only to several selected cases. National system is overloaded. And the question is on the table, who will provide a chance for justice for the hundreds of thousands of victims of this war, who will not be lucky to be selected by International Criminal Court? And we have to respond something to this, because the war turned people into the numbers. The scale of war crimes grows so large that it's become impossible to recognize all the stories, and that is why I, I will tell you one. This is a story of a woman from Chernygiv region, Svetlana, who lost her entire family when a Russian missile hit her building. I will read what, what, she, what she told. I heard them dying. My husband was breathing heavily, straining as if he was trying to throw the rubble off of himself, but he couldn't. At some point, he just went still. My grandmother and Zhenya died instantly. I heard my daughter crying. Then she also went quiet. As for my son, my mother told me that he called for me several times, and then nothing. As a human rights lawyer who worked directly with people who survived hell, I know that people are not numbers. We must demonstrate justice to all people, regardless who they are, their social position, the type of crime they endured, and whether or not international media or international organizations are interested in their case. We must return people their names, because life of each person matters. And this is not just demand of human rights organization, this is demand of millions of Ukrainians. Last year, the sociological survey was conducted and Ukrainians was asked, what will be the main disappointment for you when the war will end? And 65% of people answered, The main disappointment will be the impunity for Russian war crimes. So in this regard, justice is also a precondition for quick and effective modernization of country and providing democratic reforms. Because in order to succeed in democratic transitions, it's not enough just to adopt the qualities law and build formal institutions. The non-formal values of society always prevail, and people affected by this war, they need to restore not just their broken lives, broken vision of the future, but their broken belief that rule of law is effective and justice is possible, even though delayed in time. We must demonstrate justice. It's not enough just to quote norms from Geneva and her conventions with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights.
2: Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if uh, it's possible uh, to ask questions to you now uh, or if you will stay with us up to the end of the discussion, what will be better? You will stay with us, right? Okay, thank you so much. Uh, so the audience can uh, keep, this, keep their questions uh, for the Q&A session, and maybe um, um, Tamila as a chair will also put the questions to the following speaker, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we have, shall we move on to Ulya? Yes, 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 Alexandra is staying with us. Okay. Just a moment. So Olya, you're next.
4: Okay. All right, so I'm just gonna stand up here, if that's okay. Um, I'm a little shaken up after I listen to Alexandra. I think for those of us who have friends and family directly involved in these moments, my family is, it's, uh, it's always difficult to hear. And I am a social scientist. I'm a professor at the University of Manchester at the politics department. I run several data projects. I am the numbers lady. And now I'm having a hard time composing myself and getting to the numbers, but I'll try. So let's get to those, a little bit of these numbers, 8 million refugees across Europe, 5 million internally displaced people, underestimate likely, 17.6 million people currently in Ukraine needing urgent humanitarian assistance because their medical, personal condition in their home is affected. 7.1 of those, 17.6 are children, according to the UNHCR estimates, likely an underestimate. PTSD is high and growing, and it is much higher among the civilian population. Specifically, it is also higher, some social science studies have found, amongst individuals who have for a long time identified themselves as ethnically Ukrainian and Ukrainian speakers because they do perceive the killings, the deaths, the kidnappings, the rapes to be targeting them as a group. Civilian deaths are estimated 7,000 to 50,000. Most military institutions, whether it's in Norway, whether it's in the UK, or in the U.S., including the Ukrainian government, the mean would be about 40,000. The Kiev School of Economic reports that by the end of 2022, 10 months into Russia's all-out war against Ukraine, the total amount of infrastructure loss is 136 billion, but 143.8 thousand private, civilian, Homes and apartment buildings, 143.8 thousand. That is 143.8 families. That is many, many more individuals who have lost their home, their only place of safety. In Donetsk, this is 78 plus thousand homes destroyed. Thousands, so 78,000. In Kiev Oblast, this is over 23,000 private homes. I'm not even telling you about the numbers of everything else, bombed, destroyed. These are just the private homes in two localities. What can we call this? There is a response by legal practitioners. My colleague has already addressed this. Some continue to debate. Jusad Bellum, Jusin Bello, right? The ethics of war, the just war, what isn't is not ethical in the war context. But others have clearly, and this is a growing number of legal scholars around the world, including some of the finest uh, scholars here in the United Kingdom, that are arguing that this must be looked at through the genocide lens framework. This is a war of aggression. These are genocidal acts because they are numerous. They are widespread. Some are very clearly systematic and sanctioned by the state. Some are meant to seem as ad hoc, but are always repeated in multiple locations, by multiple battalions, by several different groups of soldiers. They seem, but they are not. These are all violations under international humanitarian and human rights law. And uh, I would like to point to you to Azarov et al, who recently published an article particularly. They pay attention to the language of, that is used by Russia's leaders to justify the invasion. And they argue, these are legal scholars, and they argue that they find the existence of genocidal intent in this language. But if you look at the acts themselves, these are killings, individual and en masse, as Alexandra has mentioned these uh, multiple instances of cause of serious bodily harm and mental harm, a genocidal act to the civilian population, particularly targeting civilian infrastructure and civilian populations. When you are shooting directly at civilians in the zone that you are occupying, when they are trying to flee to an island that is not surrounded entirely or covered entirely by water, as was in the case of last week, and you directly shoot at them, that is a direct violation. Forcible transfer of Ukrainian children, the deliberate infliction of conditions of life, that, uh, uh, of, that uh, physical destruction of the Ukrainian nation, attack on energy and water supplies, this is not simply an act of war. This is a, 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 a forcible uh, attack on the civilian population of Ukraine to make daily life Not only impossible in winter, in some cases, there are elderly people who died in their homes because they did not have enough heat, but also to provide a sense of terror and torture. If you cannot sleep for multiple nights in a row because your city is bombarded, that is sleep deprivation. That is actually known now to be one of the military tactics to deprive not simply military actors, but civilians of basic psychological being through a lack of sleep. So what can we do about this? Everyone on this panel is trying to do something about it. We can make normative statements about right and wrong, and people are doing this. We can make legal arguments, those of us who are capable, those of us who uh, have the skills to do those. Those who are in positions of power can obviously advocate for a tribunal, but scholars, the numbers girl, like myself, well, we can continue to collect, record, and analyze systematically. And we can then continue to inform and disseminate and teach through the data we collect. Some of us through personal firsthand stories and some of us through data. And this is the data that I would like to tell you about. Unfortunately, our website was attacked and this shouldn't be a surprise for anyone. But tomorrow, go to www data ukrainecom A group of researchers from uh, Penn State University, from UNC Chapel Hill, uh, from uh, the University of Maryland, and the University of Manchester, we created alarm warning system that collects millions and millions and millions of social media posts and instantly codes them into four categories. Humanitarian needs, displacement of people, human rights abuses, and civilian resistance, what do we find? Kidnappings, beheadings, burning of churches, stealing of bread from homes, not from stores. Mm-hmm. What we find through our very systemic analysis of this data that I can't go into is that there is an uptick in human rights abuses two to three weeks prior to the Russian army losing a locality. When they come under pressure, when they know that they are losing a battle, there is an uptick in rapes. There is an uptick in pillaging. There is an uptick in a variety of other war crimes and acts of genocide. But I'd like to leave you on something a little bit positive. Even in those instances where we document in our data an uptick, we also document the continuation of civilian resistance, civilian resistance under occupation. So when you do have a chance to go onto our website, you can actually look. This is the human rights abuses that have been committed, but there will be a dot in occupied territories where ordinary citizens are committing acts of resistance. And it is for those ordinary citizens, under occupation, experiencing war crimes, per, maybe having lost their homes, family members, maybe personally having experienced a violent crime. It is for them that Alexandra is talking about the call for a tribunal and for ensuring that this is a war that comes to peace, and that the true justice includes the punishment of the com- those who committed the war crimes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Um, our next speaker is Olga Iwazowska. Uh, if you to... Hello to
0: everyone. It's a huge honor to be here. Uh, I came not just for this uh, event, but next week it is going to be a big conference in London uh, about recovery for Ukraine on high level, intergovernmental, uh, with civil society and media. And when we are looking for the name of this event here, it looks like we have to talk about lives and money. What is connection between them? I can answer to your question if you have it. So it's about hope to reload uh, Ukraine to find a safe space and to back people's home with their children. Mostly we are speaking about women with children, which already spended almost one with a half year abroad. And this is a huge damage for Ukrainian political nation and this is a huge damage for Ukrainian state. Because if the war will ongoing for years and years, we will have 10 or 15 millions inside the country. It's not a good for any recovery, don't have enough people who can work, who can manage the recovery processes inside the country and who can develop itself, the state, the communities and so on and so forth. And when uh, your, my colleagues uh, presented me it's always a uh, misunderstanding why the person which uh, worked for many years with democracy and elections are uh, working now with war crimes. So unfortunately, democratic development has direct connection with full-scale invasion, unfortunately. So this is a reality that Ukraine was punished because of its own progress, because of uh, competition inside political processes because we had free and and free media, uh, because our score according to the economy's ratings of electoral democracy was even higher than uh, in between uh, different EU members countries. So we had a problem with rule of law, we still it has, but at the same time, Russia invaded Ukraine because Russian headquarters understood that Ukraine fleet, post-Soviet Union region. Now, when you use in this wording about Ukraine post-Soviet Union, it looks like uh, hating of Ukrainian people, which already developed their capacity to be a part of EU or European neighbor and to use international standards for internal processes, to have strong civil society uh, very active media, uh, very fired, but political processes during elections and so on and so forth. And Putin decided that this is the last call for Russia and for Moscow uh, to have power on Ukraine. That's why a full-scale invasion happened. And that's why very capable civil society which had some experience to documentize different processes like electoral evaluation my organization started to work with a war crime documentation, and we established a center of preliminary interviewing of people abroad because we have to have all evidences, all uh, testimonies, and to collect the data from all eyewitnesses, even if they are living now not in Ukraine. And on Monday, I will have a meeting with your security minister because UK is supporting Ukrainian track very much, injustice, accountability, and recovery. And this is uh, why it's a pleasure to be here because I, I, I truly believe that UK will be a friend of Ukraine and good partner for a long-term perspective process. But you had to listen one interesting message about war in Ukraine, that our Western partners will help Ukraine will support Ukraine, will provide military support as long as it is, as it is. Sorry, but we don't have enough people's life. And when everyone are looking how counteraction attack will, will end or will ongoing, I heard many times that it's not good, good because many uh, people uh, had a hope that it will looks like like it was in Kharkivska region last year. But you have to know that 30% of Ukrainian territories minded. So we, have, we are the most minded country in the world. That's why each of the counter activity has to provide support of military people and soldiers on the ground with this issue. Because all the people are dying on the front line. They are are not surviving in the situation with uh, totally demining territories. And we have to be cautious and to wait when it will be possible to have successful results and do not waste sacrifices uh, of Ukrainian civilian and Ukrainian soldiers. So I have to back to uh, accountability and justice uh, topic. And you have to understand that it's just not about Putin. It's about Russian society, and it's about decolonization process, for sure. When my colleague Alexandra mentioned sustainable peace, I have to highlight that Ukrainian civil society developed sustainable peace manifesto, never again 2.1, uh, 2.0. So this document is about future, but we had, had to take into account the previous experience uh, of relationship of Kiev and Moscow. And we had to understand that after the World War II, Russia, Putin, uh, sorry, Stalin and other uh, players were not punished. But you have to understand that genocide already happened in Ukraine in 1932, 1933, and near eight million people were killed through political decision of Moscow headquarters to kill Ukrainians uh, through Femin. So it already happened with us once, and then during the Second World War, when 10 million Ukrainians were killed. So in between 75 uh, millions, 10 millions were victims from Ukraine. All over the world lost 75 millions, but Ukrainians lost the 10 millions after Femin before. So this is genocide for sure, and without justice and accountability, bad people all over the world understood that it's okay to do like that if you have nuclear weapon. Because international law doesn't work very well. I'm studying my course uh, about international law now because everyone have to know in detail what does it mean uh, human rights, what does it mean uh, humanitarian, Uh, needs and what does it mean, many other things, how international organization works. But the problem is that without visible justice, nothing will happen with success manner. So visible justice, it's what has started now. And I am happy that more than 30 countries and governments decided to join one team which will develop the special rules about tribunal. But the problem is that Act of aggression is high-level crime. And unfortunately, we don't have a solution. We have to establish new institutions, new rules, and new political solutions about that. Because international law is mostly about political decisions than about regulations, unfortunately. Uh, And uh, when we will have ad hoc tribunal, we have to start the real process, even if Putin will die in Moscow. Because without that, that Russian civil society will not accept any responsibility. I'm speaking about political responsibility, first of all, what we have now in Ukraine. I heard many times from Russian activists, uh, opposition groups and so on, which are living in nice place abroad, that they can do anything. And that Russian civil society is not responsible at all. But unfortunately, we had to take responsibility uh, for our, from our side to help Ukrainian society and to help Ukrainian state to survive in these uh, very difficult days. And everyone in Russia, which wants to have free Russia from Putin or democratic Russia, has to work on a daily basis on these objectives. Recovery and reconstruction, it's not just about roads, buildings and communities. It's about possibility to have new economy in Ukraine, very well developed institutions and many other things. And we need money for that. I know that foreign taxpayers are asking their government why we have support Ukraine for years and years. Because you will pay the higher price if, Ukraine, uh, if Russia will invade after Ukraine other states which are a part of NATO aliens or EU and others, and first of all we have to understand that sustainability of these solutions has another part. I'm speaking about uh, frozen assets. We have more than three billion dollars of frozen Russian assets abroad, and a huge part of them are in uh, in Belgium, many of them are here you know that there are Russian private money and state money here, and that's why the price which Russia has to pay for reconstruction has to have connection with those assets and with future reparation which have to help Ukrainians to, uh, to back home, to rebuild their life, and to stay in Ukraine, because they have to find job in Ukraine. And last, last point, we did a survey between Ukrainian refugees in seven countries, and we are them, what are the con- preconditionalities for their are back home? The first one is security. Sure, we have to understand if people love their homes, the community, uh, communities are under the water, as in Khersonska uh, oblast, or everything are min- mined, it's not so easy to to adopt a decision to back these territories. And there are no so big differences to live in another part of Ukraine or to live uh, abroad. So security is the first preconditions, but the next is jobs. So if reconstruction will be not just about monies of investors which want to have overpriced investment into the uh, insecure area, which looks like will be overpriced. Uh, So we have to think about human resources reconstruction and involving those people who are living now abroad, who are taking their education in the best universities of the world, in the best schools as LCE and others, which will find the opportunity to work in Ukraine, Uh, so jobs will be like magnets for many uh, people which will not have any other possibility to stay at home and to find money for the food for their children. Mm -hmm. And the third one is about education. So education is very important for sure, especially for those mothers, which were looking not for jobs, not for money, even not for security, but sustainable education for the generations will be very important for those who are looking for safe place, for good jobs. But first of all, they were looking for the education for their p- children because Ukrainian children unfortunately lost a half a year because of this destroying of critical infrastructure, energy system before we had two years with COVID measures and so on and so forth. And it's about human resources which are irreversible, unfortunately, but which are very important for Ukrainian reconstruction. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Olga. We have Bill Browder joining us, unfortunately, for a very short period of time. But because he's not tuned in yet, I wanted to use this opportunity to ask some follow-up questions. And by the way, he's very busy dealing with precisely some of these issues we are discussing today about kind of getting, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, using Russian frozen assets and, and and establishing some kind of legal and uh, foundations uh, for that. But I wanted to, since uh, some of you mentioned civil society uh, in Russia and sort of Russia's broader societal role um, in this. As somebody who specialises on Russian politics, I have wondered about the the role of uh, Russian society in general in kind of mobilising to challenge. Uh, This war. And those of you, like um, Olya, who have studied public opinion, uh, perhaps also wonder about this kind of contrast between the amazing capacity of the Ukrainian people and civil society, Ukrainian civil society, to mobilize. We saw that during the Orange Revolution. We saw that during the Revolution of Dignity. We saw this amazing swell of mobilization during this war that the whole world is admiring. Of course, in Russia, there's the anti-war movement. We know that lots of people have been jailed and uh, you know, repressed, et cetera, but it doesn't seem to be as mass and as effective as the mobilizations we find in Ukraine. I just wondered if you could maybe have some answers to that, especially those of you who study public opinion or have some kind of comment about this contrast uh, and the reason for that that um, we're ob- observing. So
4: shall, shall I start? If you want to, yeah. um, So, yes, I I do a lot of public opinion work, and and, in the last nine years, I don't know, I lost count, 16 national surveys or whatever, too much, uh, probably. But but, what I think is important, what we first should say about current public opinion data on Russia, there are various tools we can use, experimental design and so on, but we still don't know how much falsification of preferences is happening, right? And... Also, Timur Kuran, if he has taught us anything, is that out of never, you can have a revolution, right? And that it might just be possible that this falsification of preferences is so immense in Russia, and there will be a day where things are different. Um, certainly, that was the case with Belarus up until 2020. No one believed that we would see such mass mobilizations in Belarus. And that is what I would like to think about uh, ordinary Russians. Uh, unfortunately, the data doesn't suggest that at the, 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 this moment in time. What we can say is that we saw other things in public opinion data that are very important and that Olha also pointed to. Um, other things were changing other than civilian engagement in civil society and protest in Ukraine for decades. So civic attachment and civic duty were increasingly high over multiple decades. But following President Zelensky's election in 2019, uh, these jumped exponentially. And these things jumped in the southeast of Ukraine and specifically amongst Russophones. Um, We write about that extensively in our book, The Zelensky Effect. Same for support for democracy, it jumped Uh, from 39% to 60% between 2019 and 2022. We have not seen those kinds of things happen in Russia. And that, I think, is part of the major difference. Ukrainians are more, more, they're more, they're Democrats. They double down on democracy when faced with threats.
1: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super-rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSEIQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
0: Um, I'm from civil society. That's why it's very difficult to speak, because I have a conflict of interest. I believe (laughs) so. Uh, at the same time, I had many good people in, in Russia, which I knew them for many years, and only one person wrote at me when full-scale innovation happened. This girl wrote at me, how are you? Um, I knew many other people. I, I believe that I knew them as a good people, but not many of them just wrote through messages. How are you? And what I heard many times from, um, from opposition uh, activists of Russia or politicians which are living abroad in a safe place and they don't have any challenges with the, their security now, that Russian society just doesn't care. So it's, they are not supporting uh, Putin's aggression or uh, war against Ukraine, they just don't care in such period of history do not care about something it should be a part of criminal stage. And when we are speaking about democracy, democracy is about participation. And Russians decided to exclude themselves from the processes of the management of their communities, of their country, and so on and so forth. It's not about ethnics. It's about political decision, do not participate. Ukrainians did only one uh, decision about that, to be on the hot spot all the time. I was participating in uh, uh, Orange Revolution. I was very young. I was beaten by policemen. I lost my position in a university for some period. It, It was very hard to accept that you have a great score, but your head of the university doesn't want to see you because you have another position. About elections. Elections is about political processes, and some of the people decided that they have a right to manage everything uh, in a country through falsification. So in 2004, when election was falsified, people of my generation were very young students, and I'm working with this track, with these topics for so many years because it's a part of my identity, my nature, that we had to fight for our rights. And political rights is about human rights. It's a part of uh, general declaration of human rights. It's not about dirty processes. On those days, uh, Ukrainian civil society may do the same decision, go home, went home, and that's it. Do not stay for three months on the Maidan, don't do anything, because all politicians are dirty people with their interests and so on. No, but we decided that we can't give our right to manage our state, just high level uh, corruption uh, groups or headquarters and so on and so forth. And when I'm listening from Russian society representatives that there is a civil society or like good people in NGOs which have uh, support from uh, international organization or foreign taxpayers and so on. They are very smart, kind, they can speak English very well and so, and there is a society which are not so smart, but please support us and then we will provide more Uh, awareness campaigning in in internet through YouTube and everyone will be happy. Sorry, but there is no differences between civil society and society. It's not like separate uh, universes. It's the same body of the people, political nation, which has the same values. And if you are not caring about your neighbors, your country, your politicians, you just exclude yourself from the processes. You don't have responsibility, but you don't have a rights. And it was a part of political uh, agreement between Putin, his regime, and society. So you will not be so active uh, because it's dangerous for, for the system, but we will, not, we will provide you some economical increase in um, or something like that. So, but it doesn't work anymore. And that's why all people who are abroad have duties now to help Ukraine win or Russia will not be ever democratic state, ever. So that's why I'm just asking for those who maybe uh, will see this uh, event or you will talk with them that they have a duties because duties is about participation (coughs) And participation is about democracy. There is direct link between these things. Nobody will uh, do your democratic state without you.
1: Thank you very much. Oh, this is really very very powerful. I, I think I, I couldn't have expressed this better. Some of these uh, thoughts I've been having. As as a Russian, it must be said, I feel very often, you know, very very uncomfortable about the kind of passivity that I'm seeing in, among the Russian. Population. We will uh, move on to to Stephen now, uh, Professor Steven Stiegel, and hopefully Bill Browder will join us in a couple yeah. in, in a few minutes. But the floor is yours.
2: May, may I make a comment for our technical support team? As soon as Bill Browder is online, just please make him visible to us so we
1: know and not wonder. And if you could also <coughs> check yeah. and make sure that he's not. Um... I'm here. Oh. i'm here <laughs> shall we
5: well, you can go ahead since so, he has to yes
1: then, thank you so much Bank for Special joining us Bank. could you can you hear us bill sure. a very nice L-
6: loud and clear, loud and clear.
1: And, uh, please the floor is yours we know you're extremely okay. busy doing really useful Congress and helpful um, a person, well, a very helpful <clears> cause, useful
6: but I, I i think everybody um who's here today in this um auditorium is is working on important and helpful things so i'm Honored to be part of your event, and and um, uh, and I, I couldn't agree more with the. Com- I, I had a chance to hear some of the comments um, uh, of of the previous speakers, and I couldn't agree more with, with what everybody had to say. Um, as as many of you know, my my um, uh, specialty and expertise is on um, freezing Russian assets. Um, it's all connected, uh, of course, to the tragedy that that. Um, I went through with my colleagues when when our uh, friend and lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was murdered 13 and a half years ago, and we came up with this idea um, of uh, uh, trying to create consequences for the Russian government um, uh, of freezing their assets and and uh, banning their visas. and And I spent the last 13 and a half years um, in this process of of um, convincing governments um, to pass legislation called the Magnitsky Act, which Um, freezes these assets. And and we've succeeded um, to a greater or lesser extent in most places where where they have assets. The um, United States passed the Magnitsky Act in 2012. Um, uh, The uh, uh, British or the Canadians passed their Magnitsky Act in 2017. The um, uh, UK in 2018, uh, followed by the um, uh, European Union in 2020 and then Australia in 2021. And so we now have, uh, if you include all those countries plus a few more, we have 25 countries that have passed Magnitsky Acts around the world. Um, the one thing that that um, was very interesting in this whole exercise is that we, we always thought about freezing assets, because freezing assets would cause pain for the criminal perpetrators in Russia. But we, we never we never thought about what what would happen to those assets after they're frozen, and as um, as you all know, the Magnitsky Act, um, I guess, was the template for then future sanctions after that, um, and it's the it's the template for the sanctions that that have were rolled out against Russian oligarchs, against Russian banks, and and um, not an exact template, but it was also but but uh, we've also seen governments at the beginning of the um, this. Um, war of aggression in Ukraine. That that more than three hundred billion, perhaps three hundred fifty billion dollars was frozen um, of Russian central bank reserves. And as as I was watching this heartbreaking, shocking, murderous war taking place, like everybody else uh, on the stage and in this room, um, I, I felt a need to do something. And and everybody is doing things in their own different ways. And and I said, well, what can I do to help? uh, counter this aggression. What can I do to help Ukraine? And I said to myself, well, I've been working for the last uh, 13 and a half years, freezing Russian assets. Um, I think we now need to figure out how to seize those Russian assets. And, um, and so the, the big project that I've been working on, and it's not just me by myself, there's many other people and, and all over the world who are thinking about this and working on it is, is to confiscate those assets. And, and, um, uh, it's very interesting for me because uh, when when I first started the Magnitsky campaign, everybody in every country said there's there's no chance that this this legislation is ever going to happen. You just you should be realistic about it. Um, there's legal reasons why we can't do it. There's political reasons why we can't do it. It's just way, it's a way an ask too far. and then as 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 we've seen, thirty five countries have Magnitsky acts. and And I've encountered the same type of of um, resistance when I talk to um, officials in different governments uh, around the world about seizing the assets. They say, oh, well, this is, um, uh, you know, we, we can't do this because it's never been done before. They say, well, Russian sovereign assets are protected by sovereign immunity and various other other excuses for not, not being able to do it. And my feeling is that this is very much like the early conversations that I had about the Magnitsky Act, which is that um, uh, it, it is going to be doable, and it will happen. It'll happen in the same way as, as Western governments said we we can't give tanks to Ukraine or we can't give long range artillery to Ukraine, and then they're already doing it. And so I think we're now just starting to come to the place where the rubber is meeting the road. Uh, many of you will have seen, uh, uh, I think I believe it was yesterday, that a piece of legislation called the Repo Act um, in the United States. Um, which was sponsored by uh, Senator Risch, and um, Senator Whitehouse has just been introduced, which um, under this legislation, uh, US, we, we give the U.S. government legal power to confiscate the assets. And we're having the same conversations with the British government. There will be this coming week a big reconstruction conference, um, Ukraine reconstruction conference, and, and I believe that this conversation should be a part of that. We're having the same discussion at the European Union with the Canadians, et cetera. And um, it seems to me that that, uh, in addition to um, uh, military aid for, for Ukraine, which is crucial and essential, and, and without it, Ukraine wouldn't survive as a country. But in addition to that, I think that this um, confiscating these assets should be really, really an important part of what I would describe as the financial military strategy. Um, it, Ukraine desperately needs this money um, Western taxpayers are going to have to bear a big burden um, when this war is over. Um, but the first person who should bear the burden is Vladimir Putin. And so I believe that this is uh, morally correct, uh, financially correct, um, politically correct. And and my prediction is that um, I can't give you a time frame, but my prediction is that that the 350 billion dollars of Russian central banks um, will be frozen. I mean, will be uh, confiscated for Ukraine at some point in the future thank you,
2: thank you. bill bill may i put um, uh, just a follow up question uh, in many discussions especially behind the closed doors we can hear some kind of uncertainty about how the collective west let's say should deal with russia in the future uh, and to what kind of uh, bilateral relations should um, uh, western states and western countries prepare um and to some extent you can find even a connection so until there is no this kind of certainty uh, there is no decisiveness about so sensitive issues like expropriation like uh, confiscation of frozen assets uh, do you share this view or this is just something which is uh, uh, not very representative uh, and if, yes, if you do share this kind of concerns that there is an interdependence between these um, two, um, two, uh, two processes or two perceptions, um, uh, what, in your opinion, might trigger this political decisiveness um, uh, to, to start a process to confiscate Russian assets?
6: Well, um, I, I, I don't think, so, so the most important thing I can say is I don't think that the, um, uh, I mean sadly my prediction is that that the war is not going to end in some discrete moment in a in a, a blaze of glory for Ukraine in the short term. I, w- I of course that's our hope our prayer our, our wishful thinking. But I know Vladimir Putin Vladimir Putin um he he, he won't physically survive if if um if Russia hmm. loses the war if he's if if Russian troops are expelled. And I believe that that he will carry on um throwing um, young men conscripts with no training or whatever he has to do into battle, which may not, which may not be, uh, certainly won't win the war for Russia, but, but will prevent Russia from losing the war. That's, that's my fear. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe this, this summer offensive will, will um, be decisive. And of course we all pray for that, but, but I don't think, I don't think that we should bank on that. And, and if that's the case, and I, and I, I know that Putin, Putin is not a negotiator, he's not a compromiser, he's not a person who will back down in any way. He can't. And therefore, my, my, my medium-term prediction is that this war carries on, um, sadly. And, um, uh, and of course, he, Putin is not running a democracy where he cares about what public opinion is for him. He, he will do whatever he has to do, um, is kill as many Russian soldiers as he needs to kill to stay in the game. And therefore, we're we we're, we're faced with a very unpleasant um, scenario, which is that the war carries on. And I should also point out that that I don't believe this war started on February twenty fourth, two thousand twenty two. I think this war started in two thousand fourteen. You know, the West, I think, really did a, a horrible disservice to Ukraine by describing the people involved in this battle as Russian-backed separatists, and and that became the common language that was used. And and that language is really horrible and, and dysfunctional because it basically meant that the West could stay out of it. It's, it was a civil war. It's not our business. This wasn't a Russian invasion. But it was a Russian invasion. So the war has been going on for eight years before, in my opinion. Um, the war has been now going on for almost a year and a half. And um, and it probably goes on for a lot longer. And so it seems to me that that we're not going to have the luxury of, of an end-of-war, post-war um, discover, dis- Discussion about this. I, I think this money should be frozen long before um, the war is over, and 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 there's a big, big thing coming up, a big scary thing coming up, which is that you know we all do live in democracies outside of Ukraine, and and some voters in some democracies are are growing weary of of military and financial aid for Ukraine, and and the, the more weariness or weariness that and, and particularly in the United States where you see some people like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis who are very likely one of the two will be the Republican nominees for president, saying you know either no no more aid for Ukraine or limited aid for Ukraine. And so there's going to be a desperate financial need for for financial aid for Ukraine that may not come from the United States. and the best way to get this money is to grab this money from the Russians who have caused a trillion dollars of damages. They've caused more than a trillion dollars of damage, and, and there's $150 billion that's sitting there. And so I, I don't think that this is going to be a, I don't think this should be, and I don't think it will be a post-war discussion. I think this will be um, a discussion that will take place while the war is going on. How do we continue to provide financial aid for Ukraine? Well, let's start with the Russians' money.
2: Thank you for this clear message. Thanks
1: thank you bill are you able to stay with us until the end and and take some questions later because we have our next speaker Steven uh, St- Siegel um, speaking for about 13 minutes or 10 10 12 minutes yeah. so uh, and then we will open up for Q a
6: sure I, I can speak I can stay for about um, I don't know 20 minutes or so so if, from, from now so if, if that's thank okay you. Thank, Thanks, thank, bill. You. thank you So um, for those
5: of you who are following the February 24th archive, I'm a historian and a geographer by training. We're now at 25 million in terms of audience impressions in 100 countries, so feel free to multitask as I speak. Day by day, on the wire, I chronicle a bloody genocidal war, Russia's war against Ukraine. Of imagined red lines and a delusional dictator, brutal empires of Euro-Eurasian colonial pasts whose boundaries can't be reconstituted save by extractive and repressive means. Denials of modern Ukraine, Russia ungrate again. I write books on greater X map annexationists on such epistemic bullying and cartographic abuse. I draw attention to transnational voices of Ukrainians amplifying them, experts right here. This is my daily decolonial tractor run. For the sake of convenience, today's day, 473, on my Twitter feed is not the start of the war, already false a number. We historians require a convenience of names and dates, actions and crimes. Wars too require titles, beginning and end, an instigator and a ceasefire, or an occasional surrender. Yet. The surrender of Ukrainians is neither possible nor desirable. Ukrainians refuse to be victims of Soviet futures. I agree with President Zelensky, an elected and popular president, the survivor of a failed coup and how many assassination attempts. Surrender is giving up independent Ukraine's sovereignty, the best of itself and its modern values to a vengeful and bloodthirsty fascist occupation. Citizens rightfully won't do it, thank all our gods. Multi-ethnic Ukraine is a political democracy since 1991 with a much longer history of statehood back to its revolutionary times, during and after the Great War, Crimean Hanate, Poland-Lithuania, the Habsburg Empire, and Cossack Hetmanate. Read your Yakelchik, Khromichuk, and Plohi. In this nine-year war since February 2014, As we know, Russia and Putin are the criminal perpetrators. And yes, there are geopolitical accomplices among us. We've normalized violators of sovereign bodies, ignoring voices of Rwandans, Chechens, Iraqis, Kurds, Afghans, Uyghurs, Syrians, and Sudanese, not to mention the late Anna Politkovskaya and Boris Nemtsov. Let's start from a premise of human applicable rights, as Alexandra has argued in Vienna and elsewhere, that every life has universal value. No nihilism, relativism, both sidesism, everything is permittedism or equivalence. ICTY cases. Every perpetrator, collaborator, bystander, and victim of the Holodomor and the Holocaust, ethnic cleansing, forced deportation, and genocide shall be named. Let's invoke Simone Wiesenthal. Criminals must be prosecuted by a special tribunal. Not show trials or 25 years in prison yards of prison states for trumped up charges. To the letter, Geneva Convention laws. Killing POWs and non-combatants, destruction of ecosystems, ruined infrastructure, targeting of taxpayers. In 2023, history, February 24th, is a limit experience, a new scale of neo-Soviet Russian violence. So name the perps, Chechnya, Syria, Mali, El Salvador, Chile, forward and then backward, 1941 and 1939, Molotov, Ribbentrop, to cold war, brinksmanship. Mariupol and Bakhmut, the new Grozny and Aleppo, a 21st century Guernica, totally damaged riverbanks, as we see in Kherson and Novokhovka. More of Kharkiv, a kind of Noah's Ark, a zoological time, dogs, cats, rabbits, livestock, and llamas. Violence, the pain, as Alexandra has said, probably at least 125 thousand war crimes. I say probably because the documentation goes on. Saving those who can be saved, atrocity journalists, disfigured bodies under rubble, targeted playgrounds and kindergartens and museums, the executed men of Bucha, rapists, distant tankies and clueless geopoliticians from DC calling for peace that means surrender. Ukrainians must fight this with weapons. The Ukrainian language and songs, too. Rabbis holding shelter for refugees rescuing dogs and children, asset seizures, flowers and fields of grain, ecocide, genocide, future denizens of The Hague. No more sacrifice zones. I'll return to this in a moment. For reconstruction, We need to map healthy Ukrainian minds and bodies, sunflowers, grain, water, soil, to go home, to have it all again. On February 24th, 2022, Europe failed. Time stopped when shock and awe began, and it was not unprecedented that cleansing coup Do ask the Bosnians, Georgians, Syrians, and Iraqis, but I would argue that most of my Europhile Ukrainian friends, and I'm non-ethnic Ukrainian, were surprised by missile strikes. I couldn't convince my dearest friends, people I love, to leave a country they loved, the country in Europe for which they protested at my dawn. Many stayed and they armed themselves, men, women, and non-binary folk, those I know who returned, who expressed a solemn conviction to stay, build, and strengthen a formidable democracy and a post-Orange and post-Maidan civil society. Dignity and values, ideals for a rule of law in Europe where Ukrainians belong. This is what we seek, past the dark legacies of political buys and Kuchma-gate Yanukovych Trumpists' arts of the deal. Kremlin favors media magnatehood and corruption. Here's where our global solidarity partners can help. I do think it's essential to emphasize the pain of Ukrainians, but gendered pain is not enough. We have to do more than shaming, martyrology, or trauma bonding. I can't dismiss the portentous shame of Muscovites. They should be ashamed. But as a progressive Jew once from Imperial Russia, I have a problem with assigning collective guilt. What's the action? I ask about inaction. Why people don't protest when they should be throwing Molotov cocktails or picking up signs. Clearly, there are white Euro-Americans and Russians in the North who benefit from an ecocidal war, those of pure geopolitics who can be bought with long-standing racial entitlement in colonial language and culture, just as there are liberal Russians who want schools, beaches, property, and trips to Budapest, who can see an out-of-prison Navalny as a just successor. But Ukrainians don't trust him or us, barely ex-cold warrior Americans, and for good reason. A Trump second term? My goodness, who are the beneficiaries of Putin? There is resistance to decolonial even among and inside us. We, who prefer to live on as white majority professionals, take trips to London, live in northern ivory tower US states or urban eugenicist welfare states and suburbs. Everyday politics of indifference We buy homes, goods, and vacations in pseudo-patriotic, alternative worlds with parasitical relations to a community of post-1945 norms. And so I support multiracial democracy in Ukraine too, but I'm often forced to be out in my Jewish and queer lives, trying to get people to help others get woke and out, or at least lose their chains in a republic. My democratic point starts with the Euro-colonial history of 1619, civil rights in the US South where I live. And when I'm in Eastern EU lands, feminist and LGBTQIA movements since Stonewall, my marker. In my ideal anti-communist democracy, children can reject their parents whenever they want to. So get on your phones during a lecture. We need to find justice to respect our voters, who should be allowed these choices in Ukraine since the Orange Revolution and in Eastern Europe as far as they can go. For all this future complexity, we don't just need tribunals, we need a social democratization, democratizatia. We need justice to prosecute in The Hague, the Kremlins murderers, have uncorrupt court sessions, workdays, and normal country repair. Punishment for everyone involved is not just international trial, just as citizenship is not just voting. I see the best of protesting diaspora activists, Ukrainians, who gather funds, build archives, create chairs of Ukrainian studies. I am trying. Illuminate war, war, war writers, the wrinkle blooms of the world in Ukraine. Contemporary East European artists and diarists, poets and novelists in Ukrainian, the ones who write well with experience and who've done the research. Create mental health facilities for traumatized refugees and returning combatants and their families. Give all the displaced and dispossessed back what they've lost, victims of violence, to reconstruct education, homes among federalist states, and health. I am I, an American, and Don Quixote. This will cost trillions of dollars. First of all, we need to give Ukrainians the weapons they need to win. The effects of this genocidal war will last a century. Yes, there is a legal case. Yes, public intellectuals have a role. I see a potential to work cooperatively with the ICC, Having knowledge of the ICTY, read Yugoslav scholars. Mapping out the crimes, recording testimonies. I work in Texas in an authoritarian state, so this is not easy. I've sought to reach out to six communities just quickly for the February 24th archive to get them to hold conversations. Professionally trained experts in Ukrainian studies, Interested non specialists journalists and NGO activists who have no time and work on different schedules, but they know how to research war crimes diplomats and policymakers investors bill Browder, long large and small and six most importantly a voting gerrymandered citizenry in fact gerrymandered off the map and sometimes out of Europe. Ukraine is one of the few issues through the rest of 2023 and 4 that binds US values voters across across a wide spectrum. Look at conservatives and moderate Republicans as well as Democrats. USians may grow tired of war reportage, but USian localists lead principled lives from south to north and east to west, granted in need of steering. We transplanted Southerners fly Ukrainian flags in our heartlands. We have hope that we get from you, the people on this panel. We are not morally indifferent. Short of other plans, we will have to find the legal means to arrest Putin and his Gerbelsian goons as they cross into the space of countries that share in basic values of South Africa, South Africa, that was a slip, The basic values of democracy, look at the South African case or the Zambian case, civil rights and the rule of law, evidence of criminality and murderous moral rot in Russia. Let's even call it evil because it's so banal and overwhelming. Invoke Hannah Arendt. We still have the power to litigate these crimes. When they're not golfing or yachting, Incumbent white oligarchs defend the levers of power. They tie up everything in court. They harass and sometimes kill us. The Hague is waiting for the kidnappers of children. There can be a Nuremberg, maybe. At least, we'll most certainly need an international special war crimes tribunal with or without a US president. Congress is doing something. It works as a model for the prosecution of war criminals in a post-Yugoslav rather than a post-modern world. See the cases of Milosevic and Karadzic if you think Assad and Putin should be next. So I'll finish.
1: Thank you very much, Steve, and and to all our presenters for such powerful, powerful comments and and answers to the, the, the questions about uh responsibility of russia for for the crimes i do i am conscious that bill needs to go so if uh, i will open up to questions now and uh, if you have questions for bill please let us start with those and those of you who have questions for the other Mm -hmm. panels please hold on so we 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 um we probably have a couple of minutes for those questions so please wait for um Somebody approach you with you with a microphone, and please make sure you introduce yourself.
7: Yeah, um, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Browder knows who I am, um, Ewan Grant. I'm now a journalist on the war. My questions are, are for all of you, but particularly in Bill Browder's context. Where do you see France and Germany on further freezing? and confiscation. I say that particularly in the context of his books, which are essential reading, but particularly alongside the sorry saga of the wire card fraud, and I would urge everybody in this room and online to read Dan McCrum's Money Man book, particularly because of the grossly understudied references to Russia in that book? And anybody who reads it will understand what I'm getting on at. More Bill Browder, more Dan McCrum, but where do you see Germany and France in this? They are real weak links. Thank you.
6: Thanks for the question. The, um, uh, You're your, your, um, your your, your not wrong. Um, you know, particularly in the past, um, you know, Germany was responsible for building a pipeline, a gas pipeline, um, in in cahoots with Russia, with a specific goal of bypassing Ukraine um, as a way of gaining for Russia to gain leverage over Ukraine. And so the you know the history of, of German public policy um, has been one of of um, shame and. Um, and of course, that's just one of many examples. Yeah, you're also right in asking the question, because if we look at the 350 billion of central bank reserves, um, the lion's share of that money is in the European Union. The, the Russians didn't trust the United States, um, uh, didn't trust the UK. And so um, I think 200, 200 billion of euros of that, of that amount of money is in the European Union. Um, i don't believe it's in france or germany i think a lot of that money is in belgium strangely but um any any decision is going to have to be made by the european union as a whole and of course these countries are are sort of um you know as you say weak weak on the subject Uh, having said that we we end up with um with a situation where um it's either the european taxpayers that are going to pay for this reconstruction or or the russian Um, I should say that the Putin regime is going to have to pay for the reconstruction, and so um, I think the financial realities of this story will eventually become overwhelming, even for countries that have had a history that doesn't look so favorable, as we've just discussed.
1: Thank you. you. Uh, Any more questions for Bill? I see there's a gentleman here.
8: Uh, my name is Luke Marchand. I'm a student at SOAS. I just wanted to ask you
6: um, obviously there's been a lot of uh, furor over seizure of Russian public assets um, the high-profile firms and whatnot, but obviously the hiding of money has been going on for a very long time since the 1990s and um, I suppose I just wanted to ask in your opinion as a financial expert on the matter where do you think we might find large concentrations of money or assets that the wider public or governments aren't yet really focusing on? Um, obviously, we've had nasty surprises in Belgium, but there must be a lot more out there. Where aren't we looking that we should be looking? Thank you. That's a great question. And um, uh, I would estimate that that the amount of, of private assets, so, so we've talked about sovereign assets, which is 350 billion. I would estimate that the amount of of private assets, assets belonging to oligarchs, who in many cases are trustees for Vladimir Putin, um, in the West equals a trillion dollars. Um, I come to that conclusion analytically in my second book, um, and so I'm not just pulling that number out of out of the air. And the problem is that, uh, as you've said, and, and you're exactly right, these people have had decades of the best lawyers and the best trustees and the best structurers coming up with ways to hide this money. This money was stolen. They knew it was stolen from the very beginning. They knew that at some point somebody in some situation was going to come after them. And so they're like light years ahead of governments in terms of hiding the assets. And so then then the question is, well, how do we find those assets? And I have an idea, which I've been talking to different governments about, it hasn't gotten traction yet, but but hopefully it will, which is that um, I think that that as in, in future um, iterations of sanctions law, there needs to be an amendment to the c- sanctions laws of the major you know, allied countries. And that amendment is that um, if a person is on a sanctions list, um, then anybody who has been involved in, in structuring their affairs, um, lawyers, accountants, etc., would be under a duty of law um, to come forward um, to their respective government um, to, to basically um, explain where the money is. And in doing so, it turns the poacher into the gamekeeper, um, and it makes the structurers, the money launderers, the hiders, um, basically subject to going to jail if they don't come clean. And that would make the, the whole situation much, much, much easier for the governments than to go after the money. And I think we'd find huge amounts of of Russian... Uh, corrupt assets in the West that we're not aware of as of right now. I'm, I'm uh, th- thank you all for for a great conference. I'm going to have to go now, but but um, uh, I, it's been wonderful to hear hear the speeches of my co-panelists, and I'm really grateful to be included in this important event. And and uh, uh, we all have a, a big mission ahead of us. Th- thank you. And, and thank goodbye.
1: you, Bill. Thank you very thank much, you for joining us, and thank you for all the amazing work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let us open up. We have about five minutes, unfortunately. And we we've, I've, we've, I've just been told that we have to um, Move quickly. finish promptly, because there is another talk uh, here in, in about half an hour, which I'm also chairing. So let us open up. I see. A...
8: Hello. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm Boris. I work in uh, security technology. And I have a question which might be most of interest to Olga, but uh, I would be. Uh, Very happy to hear insights from everyone who has something to say. So, I'm in touch with some of the people who work in Ukrainian security sphere, and there is a kind of hawkish wing there who don't have much faith in uh, international law, and they think that the best way to ensure long-term security of Ukraine is make sure that Russia is never capable of acting as a single, coherent force. And there are some scenarios which they're modeling, including a potential. uprisings in Russia, I don't mean um, kind of liberal Russians making Russia a democracy, I mean a situation where there is a chaos. And so uh, working with statistical data from Russia, quantitative surveys, do you see any pockets of instability, there, far right groups which might become more influential or which might challenge uh, the government or ethnical groups which might challenge the government or any other sources of kind of bottom up instability in Russia? Thank you.
0: I will answer shortly. Uh, In a short manner, it's not about me, but uh, we produce a special report already and research. uh, What will be the price if Russia will win? And what will be the price if Ukraine will win? And you can find it uh, during the next week or two on our web portal uh, Ukrainian Victory. Uh, International Center for Ukrainian Victory. Uh, it's a huge uh, research with uh, different type of data. We try to, uh, to to gather in everything like that. But I believe that we have to think about uh, Ukrainian victory through sustainable uh, security guarantees, not what will happen in Russia. Because everything was predictable about uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It was mentioned here the role of germany it was predictable when ukrainians were uh, loudly talking then when uh, germany and others will finish this critical infrastructure project russia will invade ukraine in full-scale manner because that pipeline was a part of our security guarantees next stage of security sustainable guarantees for ukraine is nato membership so it, it's not about this war, it's about next war, which will happen after the end of this stage of the war, because we had eight years of uh, first stage of the war, now it's another stage, and then we will have a gaps. I was participating in Minsk process for two years. There is no any guarantees which Russia will give us through this, uh, uh, this regime or any others Even if Russia will fail on the battlefield, even if Russia will not look like, as we see it now, I'm talking not just about regime, but about borders, Ukraine will be under the uh, insecure uh, situation without sustainable guarantees. And it's about big coalition, as it happened with tank coalition, fighter jets coalition, and we are speaking about institutionalization of uh, guarantees for Ukraine and for Europe and for you too, unfortunately, because next war will be bigger than this one.
1: Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have to end now, but I'm sure there are more questions. And may I take the liberty to suggest that if our panelists uh, would, if somebody has a burning question you know you 're welcome to address the panelists outside of once once we all proceed outside uh, of, of this hall and maybe you 'll be able to have a conversation uh, that way but please uh, join me in in thanking our our panelists for their contributions and for a very very thought provoking set of comments and discussions um, uh, the, or, 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 uh, about um, uh, everybody is responsible Russia's but also the kind of the moral issues and legal uh, issues that uh, we'll all be thinking about for, for, for a long time to come. Thank you very much
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next We hope you join us at
6: another LSE event soon.